What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Baseball America College Podcast. It is Monday, April 20, and we are back for another week of exciting college baseball action. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me is Joe Healy, as always. And while we don't have the actual games, the content rolls on, and we are continuing with our twice-week podcast here in the spring. This is our first podcast of the week, so that means, Joe, it's the newsier episode of, of the two. The second podcast, which comes out on Friday, is our series where we are rewatching classic games and then bringing a guest on who was a participant in those games to talk with us about them. Uh, we'll have more about what you can expect uh, this Friday if you want to watch the game before we do the podcast and uh, so you know what we're talking about when we actually uh, get that podcast out to you on Friday. But today, Joe and I will be joined by Rutgers coach Steve Owens. Coach Owens is somewhat noteworthy uh, because of a piece I did last week starting our series of Coaching Confidential, wherein I surveyed 90 coaches from around the country uh, on a variety of topics, including who is the most underrated head coach. And Steve Owens was voted by his peers to be the most underrated coach in the country. So we're going to talk with him a little bit about that, a little bit about uh, him settling in at Rutgers. This is his first season in Piscataway, how it ended suddenly, of course, and also Rutgers was victim of a very unusual refueling accident uh, during the season. And we'll, uh, we'll let Coach Owens explain that in, in greater detail because I could not possibly do it justice. Uh, it is uh, quite the, it, it was quite the situation. But before we get to that, Joe, uh, how are you doing on this uh, fine Monday? Yeah, so far so good. Um, you know, excited to talk a little bit about Steve Owens and everything kind of that, that you got into there. I think he's an interesting guest uh, for us to to discuss for a number of different reasons. I mean, one, he just is notable because of your the series you're doing where you, you survey coaches and him coming out as, as the most underrated coach in the country. He's also a guy, as you alluded to, who's just done a lot of winning. I think it's interesting that he's been at – he was at a SUNY school at Cortland – then he was at Lemoyne, and we actually, it's funny, Lemoyne comes up again. We talked about Lemoyne a little bit on the last week's rewatch podcast because Manhattan at the time was playing in the same conference as Lemoyne. But I think it's interesting that he was at Lemoyne and then led them to a lot of success. He was actually there while Lemoyne was transitioning back to being 
uh, Division II school. Um, so he, that, that had to have been an interesting time in his career there, but had success there. Then moves on to Bryant as Bryant is doing the opposite and is moving up and then immediately turns Bryant into what we know Bryant to be now, which is the class of the BNEC, annual regional contender. I think there was one point in time there where he got them to regionals three out of four years, including one year they were a two seed. Really good team. James Karinchak, I think, was, was a pitcher on that, that team that was the best of the bunch. So he's just an interesting guest, and that's before you even talk about getting jet fuel spilled all over the gear, which is perhaps the most absurd story in college baseball in 2020. And certainly – I mean, it was before the World Series got canceled. That well, sure, sure. That's just tragic. There's absurd and there's tragedy. <laughs> and I guess I shouldn't, I was just actually just about to say, I guess I, we shouldn't make too much light of the situation because that could have been a dangerous situation and also a harmful situation. And certainly there was, even though um, they kind of, the airline made good on the situation in the end, there could have been a lot of loss for a program like Rutgers, um, you know, with, with gear and, and clothing and, and things like that. So there, there could have been a loss there. I guess it, all's well that ends well, I suppose, but I guess it, it, it's something that can be laughed about now that maybe was a little more serious at the time. But I just remember when we first heard about that story, we, we were still in the office at the time. Remember that being in the office, that was something. I remember actually talking about it with you when that came up and just I'm trying to remember of, where we were now. Cause like, I feel like I was in Houston maybe. And then like, yeah, we were in the office after that. Yeah, I think it was just in the one day, the one day between because you had come back from Houston. I think we were both in the office one day together and that's when I flew out to California the next day. So it was just had to have been in that one day when we were both in the office for a period of time. So I got it in under the wire, this absurd story about (laughs) jet fuel being spilled all over all of their equipment. So um, looking forward to kind of talking about some or all of that stuff because I, I do think he's, even without him being, named as the most underrated coach in the country by his peers, I think he'd be an interesting guest in general and certainly just adds to it being being that his peers feel that way about him. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say here right now, um, through the beauty of podcast magic, uh, this interview has already happened and Joe's not on it. Uh, we actually managed to create a scheduling conflict for ourselves this morning, which feels impossible in these uh, self-isolating times. Uh, but it's just me. And I will say that the things that we could have gotten into that we didn't are pretty long still. Like he, Steve Owens has had a very legitimately interesting career. He was a two sport athlete in college and like was a legitimately good football player at the level. I believe it was a division three level, uh, but he was like the team's leading rusher. Uh, so he was a running back. And, and as a junior, he led the team in rushing. And I think he scored 18 touchdowns, maybe over two seasons. I should still have these numbers pulled up in front of me, but uh, so he was a legitimate two-sport guy, and you know he starts his career in D3, and it, it's not unheard of that guys who start their careers at that you know at lower levels can't move up. You know they certainly can. Uh, you know Central Michigan hired Jordan Bischel, uh, you know before last season, and, and then he of course takes them to to regionals, and uh, you know he's just the most recent example that I'm thinking of. There are plenty of others, but. You know, it's not the most common career track. You know, typically you start in Division One or you move into Division One pretty quickly as as an assistant coach, and that's not his career track. He's been a head coach most of his career, and he literally had never had a losing season before this one. I don't know if we want to count the abbreviated 2020 season as a as a season 
uh, in, in that uh, streak. I, I would suggest he probably still has that streak going, uh, but they did finish six and nine this year. So if you want to say he finally had a losing season, that's fine. It happened in year 28 of his head coaching career. So it's a, uh, it's really, he's been an impressive coach at a variety of levels and the story of how he built Lemoyne and then built Bryant is really an impressive one. And, you know, frankly, you know, I'm, I'm out here creating content by, uh, for ourselves by, by running this survey. Uh, but this is also a reminder that I probably and others, you know, should have done a better job of telling the Steve Owens story earlier on if we're allowing him to be the most underrated. We'll get into this a little more after the interview. But, uh, you know, I initially when I got the results back and I told Joe, or I asked Joe to guess, like, who, who the most, who would, who would finished first in this balloting and Joe did not get it at all. And he didn't get it because then when I told him it was Steve Owens, he was like, Oh, I thought he was properly rated by now. Uh, like I thought he was too on the radar for that. Uh, so he's not. And uh, I guess that's partially a, a failure of my own. So uh, you know, he is Steve Owens is, is a, a really interesting guy. And I think this is a, a really interesting interview and I'll stop talking and we'll just get right to it. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're joined by Rutgers coach Steve Owens. Coach, thanks for joining me in uh, this very unusual spring. When was the last time, you know, we were in April and you weren't somewhat involved in baseball? I, I really can't. I can't remember. Like, uh, it's been at least 30 years, maybe more than that. Um, so it's, uh, it's certainly a, a unique experience. And, uh, you know, a tough one for, for a lot of people in a lot of ways. So one of the reasons I wanted to, to have you on the podcast this week is last week um, we, we started our series of uh, confidential coaches where I sent out a survey to every, or to, I got 90 survey responses from division one head coaches from across the country. And uh, you were voted in that the most underrated coach in the country when you saw that or, or heard that, what, what did you think and, and, and what do you make of, uh, of your peers voting you as, as the most underrated coach? Well, um, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm appreciative of, um, of the fact that, um, that they, they recognize that I've done a pretty good job over, over a long period of time and I've been at, at relatively smaller schools and smaller conferences for the majority of that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's the primary reason what uh, it's kind of my, my career has kind of taken me through different steps and different journeys in, in different places. But I've, I've stayed at places for, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 years. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think most recently, you know, the the uh, success that we had, um, I think, was, you know, was something that kind of received some national recognition. We were put some very good seasons together and had some some high draft choices and won a lot of games, and uh, and put ourselves in you know in a position to be very respected as a you know as as a high level mid major program that that was consistent and, and did it over and over again every year. So I guess I guess I'm um, it, I'm not surprised. That, that I would, you know, be considered an underrated coach because, you know, a lot of, maybe a lot of people still 
don't know, you know what I've been able to accomplish in my career, but I'm appreciative of the fact that uh, I think you know, being recognized by your, your peers and colleagues is probably one of the highest honors you can get. And so I feel good about that. The, um, you know, the track record you have is, is really impressive. You haven't had a losing season uh, before this year. I don't know if we're going to count this abbreviated season in that, but you'd all, every, every year you'd had had been a winning season, and you did it at a variety of places, at, at a variety of levels, from Cortland State to LeMoyne to Bryant. Um, you've been a Northeast guy that whole time. And obviously college sports in that part of the country isn't maybe as big, uh, you know, just kind of the, the big business it is in, in some other areas. But your colleagues in the Northeast, there, there's a lot of good baseball going on there. When you look at, at what you've been able to accomplish at, at Northeastern, at UConn, uh, with, with Mike Lavin and Jim Penders and, and Boston College getting to a super with Mike Gambino. I mean, what, what do you see in the Northeast, why, why is it that um, you guys are maybe a little under the radar, but, but still able to achieve at such a high level? Well, I think, you know, there's highly populated cities in the Northeast, you know, from, you know, from Boston uh, into the, the greater New York City area and Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people there. And, you know, it's quite evident that you know, when you have a lot of people, then there's a lot of good players. And even though they're not playing, you know, year round, like some kids from Florida and Texas and California, um, there's, there's a lot of really good athletes in all sports. And, and so if you kind of go through everyone's um, roster uh, across the country, or at least the Eastern Seaboard, you kind of see there's a few kids from New York and a couple from Massachusetts or New England, Connecticut, and there's a lot of kids from New Jersey. So there's obviously a respect for the talent that exists in those places. And I think, um, um, you know, while a lot of that talent leaves uh, every year, a lot of it does stay. And uh, those schools that you mentioned uh, have done a good job of recruiting in their regions and getting high-level uh High level talented kids and then I think developing them and, and, and putting together good programs every year. So, um, you know, while it's not recognized as being a powerhouse region of, of baseball in the country, um, you know, I, I think um, there's a lot of good players and, and I feel that, um, you know, there's a lot of choices. There is a lot of schools in the Northeast, even though you know, there's, there's not that many schools in, in power five type conferences. There's a lot of schools. So, some of that talent gets spread out and, and there's a lot of division one schools in the Northeast also. So, um, you know, I think, I think those, those guys have done a great job of, of recruiting, um, uh, to their schools. And, uh, and most of those kids, you know, are high school kids that they've done a really good job of, of keeping in the area and then developing. And, uh, they've had a lot of success. You, uh, you took the Rutgers job a year ago now, you're just kind of getting started there, but what, what drew you to Rutgers last summer? Well, I feel, um, I feel each, each time I've made a, a career decision, uh, you know, both professionally and for my family, I kind of feel like it's, it's, uh, I've been at a place where I've done my absolute best. I've given it all I can, um, established, you know, tons of great relationships. Um, and then I've kind of, I've kind of known when, <clears throat> when the right opportunity has been, 
to maybe move on. And, and sometimes I feel that I've, you know, haven't been as aggressive as I could have been because I've always liked where I've been. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't do my job to get somewhere else. I did it just to do it at a high level. But um, it just felt like the right time. And, uh, and the opportunity um, you know, arose. And it was an opportunity to, um, to uh, stay in the Northeast and uh, be able to coach you know, in a really good conference. Um, and just you know, also be around you know, big time football and basketball, which is, which is very fun to be, be in those type college settings when those type of uh, sports are being played. <clears throat> and to be able to take another step professionally, um, accept a large challenge because the program hasn't done well you know, of late. Um, obviously, you know, during Coach, Coach Hill's uh, prime time, um, things were rolling in, and there was a lot of great players that came through here and a lot of team success. And so um, it just felt like a great challenge. I was excited about the administration and the leadership at the school. And I was I was very excited to to get into the Big Ten Conference and you know in an area where I've been able to recruit my whole career and uh, bring my staff with me and just get going. So you guys only got in I guess about a quarter of the season, but what what had you been able to learn about the Knights through through fall ball and then through what the the fifteen games you did play? Well, the, the I think the first year you go into a program. Um, it's very difficult because you have to learn all of your new players, you know, both what they can do on the field and off and, and everything else about them. And then you have to learn the school and the operating structure. And, and it, it's just, um, it is a large task. Um, and, and it was difficult, um, but I do feel that we had made some progress. <clears throat> we were, um, you know, we had made some progress with some players. We had a lot of young players, um, and in addition, we had a decent number of veteran players as well. And uh, we went through the fall, um, got a lot of repetition in, kind of kind of sat back as far as, you know, didn't get involved in too much change or instruction until we knew what we had. And then we were preparing for a season and uh, trying to do the best we can. And I think, you know, I think we had a chance to be a solid club. Um, you know, we, we weren't going to... Uh, you know, set the world on fire, but I thought we were, had a chance to be a very solid club with a lot of good athletes. Um, and, you know, again, um, you know, uh, a lot of these kids will be back next year. We had a chance, you know, kind of like a, a free pass to, to go through some preparation and get to know them and then actually compete a little bit. But now the kids get, you know, get their seasons back. So kind of looking at it in a positive way, um, as far as, you know, we know more about the kids. We just had our evaluations with them. We were able to talk very candidly and truthfully uh, about, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. And then, um, and just letting them know that, you know, each year the goal is to get better. And, uh, and so we're committed, you know, to their development as well as the competition that's going to happen as we bring new players into the program. So a couple of weeks, or I guess maybe a week before the season ended, you guys had a very unusual experience as you were coming home from Arizona, where you'd been playing Washington State. You had a layover in Salt Lake City. And then in the transition to the new plane, uh, I guess some jet fuel got spilled, or a lot of jet fuel got spilled on your bags. And that led to a lot of uh, loss and, and damages and, and headaches, I'm sure, for you. Um, 
what were all the challenges that 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 did cause and and kind of where where is that situation now i know you were looking at having to replace a lot of uniforms and, and equipment yeah that was that was unique um i don't know if anyone's ever had that happen to them i've never heard of it um but it was it was crazy we were taking a uh, you know kind of a red eye back from uh from arizona after after playing at Washington State for a weekend. And, uh, you know, we we're planning on getting back at, you know, like four, maybe four or five o'clock in the morning, back up. I don't know if we we're going into JFK or where, where we were going into, but uh, we we're planning on getting back and then driving the bus back to school and, and uh, you know, starting the day on Monday. And it, it kind of, we had a connection in Salt Lake City and we were on the plane getting ready to go. Um, to, to actually sh you know shuttle off to the airport or to the runway and uh, and then the, the pilot or the co-pilot came back and called me up to the front I my initial reaction was you know that somebody had you know one of my guys had gotten in trouble for for doing something and so I, I did the walk up to the front of the plane and then he called me out and said that there was uh, some issues with the baggage that in their final check um, they had um, noticed that there was fuel a fuel smell coming from a lot of our team bags and, and they were going to have to take them off the plane. And, uh, that started like a three hour, you know, circus of getting all the bags off. They put them out on the tarmac. We were out there smelling them, deciding which ones had been damaged, which ones weren't. Um, there was a lot of people involved and it was late at night too. So I think they had called some other people in and, and, uh, it was just kind of a really bizarre situation. Um, I think what had happened is, you know, all of our bags were coming from one plane and being loaded onto that plane. And, and it seems like there was a, a, a fueling mishap, whether it was in a connection or, uh, or a leak uh, or, or some type of um, damage to a hose. It seems like when our bags were on one of those luggage carts, um, a bunch, you know, fuel got sprayed all over them. And uh, so it was, it was, I mean, it was kind of shocking because I'd never heard of it before. Um, and then, you know, all the people that were on the plane were from New Jersey and they were all, you know, going back, um, back home. And, and it was kind of like, it was an uncomfortable situation because it felt like, you know, they were mad at us because we were on the plane and, and we had nothing to do with it. And, but it, you know, it was, it was a very uh, uh, difficult thing because it, it affected, you know, we got back four or five hours later. Um, we left our director of operations with, um, at the hotel at the airport to deal with, um, you know, the, the more details of how we're going to rectify all this with the Delta people. And then we went back and got back late. And then um, when we got there, you know, we, we took our bags and put them on the bus. And even the ones that, there was very few bags that we took back with us. The rest of them were all damaged too bad to put on a plane. Um, but we, we got them back to our locker room and it was, you know, it smelled like, it smelled like, you know, like a gas tank. Um, so it was, it was a lot of the stuff was ruined. Um, it took a long, a long process to, to assess everything, to inventory everything. I will say, and it was difficult because we had a game the next day. We actually had, to, we had a game on Tuesday that, you know, I called, I called the coach, I called Fritz at St. Joe's and said, Hey, we, we don't have our stuff to play. So we're going to have to push this back and try to reschedule it. And, and it was, uh, it was crazy. 
So we had, I think we had four sets of uniforms with us and then all of the equipment and the, you know, the radio equipment, the medical equipment and all the equipment that you travel with. And um, not all of it, but a lot of it got damaged. And, um, and the smell, that smell from the jet fuel just doesn't come out. Like a little bit gets on your back and it just infiltrates everything. So um, that's what happened. And it took, you know, it took a long time to get this whole thing. You know, we did have enough um, uniforms to try to replace what was damaged for and a few of the sets. So we were able to at least have a couple sets um, to get going and keep playing. Um, but it was, it was very difficult on our equipment managers and, uh, and all of our support people that were just trying to help, you know, help with this situation. Um, I will say, um, I think it was Monday morning when I got back and uh, probably by 10 or 11 o'clock that day, um, I had received a phone call from, uh, from someone very high up at Delta and uh, they apologized and they said they were gonna, you know, don't worry about things, we're gonna make this right. And, and they did, um, they did every single thing that they were supposed to do. So we inventoried all, everything, we sent them the list of what was personally lost for our players and then, and then all the team stuff that we, you know, had, that was damaged and lost. And, um, and they took care of everything. It, you know, it, it took a long time to get through that whole process, but they did take care of everything. So it's kind of in the rearview mirror now, and we're just moving on. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I can't say I've ever heard of any situation like that, you know, baseball, otherwise. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not something you get on a plane thinking like, oh, the, this might go wrong. Everyone's just concerned that the luggage makes it on the plane. Yeah, I mean, the, the crazy thing is, you know, you can replace uniforms, but uniforms take like, you know, anybody that's ever coached or coached a team knows when you order a uniform, especially a custom uniform, it's like three or four months to get them, you know, so it's not something you can just go to the store and, and replace quickly. I mean, we were probably going to look at just getting generic pants quickly and then, you know, T-shirts printed up with numbers and, and things like that. Um, and then... Uh, you know, the bats were fine. We just had to wipe them down. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, catchers, anything that had was pretty much done. Um, and then the thing that we were concerned about the most was, was the player's gloves because mm -hmm. you just don't, you just can't break a new glove in, 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 in a week um, or get one. So, um, but the, most of the players, if you've seen the college players travel, which I'm sure you have, they all like clip clip their gloves on their loops nowadays, and uh, and and most of our guys um, had their gloves with them. So there was some that were damaged, but not too many. I bet every one of those players is going to have their gloves and their carry-ons from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably going to be part of our travel rules now. You know, you gotta. <laughs> but you know, again, obviously mis mistakes happen, and and uh, I guess you know that was a major it was a major blunder, and it caused a lot of headaches and problems um but it, it got rectified and, and i think the good thing about it is um you know i mean no it was a travel accident and nobody got hurt and you know there's no sickness from it so i mean <clears throat> we, we lost some stuff and you can replace stuff so we're moving on so then the season gets shut down um, how did you go about working through everything that comes with that, you know, helping the players mentally, helping them adjust to, you know, doing everything online and, and working with the seniors on, on their decisions about whether they uh, 
they want to come back for that extra year or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, every single um, college program in the country, you know, has a lot to deal with with this because it affects a lot of people. And, you know, initially we were, you know, we were getting on a plane. We were about ready to get on another plane to go play a weekend and, and start our spring trip. And then um, three hours later, you know, we weren't flying. And then another hour or two after that, our players were still hanging out. We were looking at getting on a bus and going somewhere else because we couldn't, we couldn't fly. And, uh, and then about another hour after that, everything got shut down. Um, and so we told the players, um, Hey, we're, we're shut down. We don't know how long this is going to be. Um, get your stuff and go home. And, uh, that was, you know, so everyone got their stuff and went home and then it just was, you know, constant phone calls with administration as they were dealing with, um, you know, state and, and, um, and school, uh, policies and regulations and step by step by step they've done a really good job of communicating with us and then we just communicated with all the players throughout this whole process I think the first thing that we did was about a week in just you know let the guys know you know step by step with what was going on and then then the next big thing was whether um, you know what the NCAA's decision was with respect to eligibility of spring sport athletes we called our seniors ahead of time just to let them know um, you know, we'd get back in touch with them as soon as we had definitive answers. And we did that. And then we, we had to decide, you know, which guys had jobs and weren't coming back and which guys we, you know, we had room to take back. And then we went through the funding process. And I will say that, uh, you know, Rutgers is one of the schools that decided to, to fund the, the you know, the seniors um, that were on scholarship and bring them back. Uh, so, you know, we're appreciative of that. And, uh, you know, if, if they, some schools that didn't have the money to do that or, um, but we're happy that we were able to get some of those guys back. And then since then, just like every other team, you know, we've been doing WebEx calls and zoom calls and text messaging and just trying to keep in touch with them. And, and, uh, and our weight, you know, your strength coaches are sending out, you know, virtual programs that uh, kids can follow on their own, whether they have equipment or don't have equipment. You know, guys are out playing catch in the in the roads and in their backyards, and I, I think people were were trying to get some stuff done. You know, thinking that we were going to get going again in another couple of weeks, and um, and then I think you know, in, like in New Jersey or New York, I mean, I think all the parks are shut down. You can't even go to a baseball field right now, you know, without somebody telling you that you're you're violating the rules. So, just been difficult, I think, on the players. Um, because you know they they work really hard to get get ready to go and then you know it's just very bizarre that an entire season would get would get shut down and and that we're in this this uh you know we're in this particular you know particular tough spot across the country right now so i think everyone's doing the same thing you're just doing the best you can uh, to communicate with your guys and keep them positive keep them active and then uh, the academic people are monitoring them the classes, you know, are all online, and 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 that's 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 a great thing that they're not going to lose, you know, a full semester of academic work. Uh, it seems like everyone in the country kind of figured that out, and and so a lot of people have done a lot of work to make it, you know, uh, as easy as possible, so that the kids can continue on their academic path, and then you know, they'll they're just gonna. We had to change a lot of the kids' uh, programming, you know, like some of the kids have to take another major or another minor. Uh, you know, to be in, to be in uh, NCA compliance with what their 
their new academic paths are going to be. So I don't think we're any different than anyone else. It's just, you know, again, everyone is plugging away, doing the best they can going day to day. And, and quite honestly, you know, as coaches, I think we've been pretty busy um, communicating with our staffs and our players. And then, uh, you know, just trying to continue to uh, recruit and go forward with what you do. So what have you been doing to, uh, to stay busy yourself? I mean, even with all of the stuff that you have to do in relation to the team, you, I'm sure you still have a little bit of extra time. Are you, are you reading more? Are you, you binging more on Netflix? Or are you doing DIY stuff? Like what, what have you been doing uh, to, to stay busy? Well, I have, a, I, have a, I have a puppy. I have a golden retriever. He's, not, he's, he's probably like seven months old now, but he's, he's kept us busy with you know, walks and we've kind of taken some walks um, every day uh, with the family. And then you know, my children are home with me, which is, which is great that everyone's safe and happy. And so we're just, you know, my oldest son goes, does the grocery shopping. Everyone does their role. Um, and, you know, we've been able to get outside and do some, do some walking. We actually did a little bit of fishing yesterday. We didn't catch anything, but at least we weren't in the house. We got outside and did some stuff and, you know, fixed the lawn, cut the trees down. You know, I've had every single tool that I actually have to fix a lawn going from a chainsaw to a weed eater to... You know, I've, I've mowed my lawn, even though it's not really growing. I, I mow it like too often right now. So just to do something. And I think everyone's doing the same thing, like um, fixing your property, fixing stuff in your house that's broken. I, I actually, when I moved from Rhode Island, um, from the minute it was, it was in the middle of our fall segment. So the moving truck moved in. My wife took care of the entire house uh, over the course of the fall and my my shed and my garage were absolutely filled up to the brim with things that had never even been unboxed and that i don't know if that ever would have gotten done if this didn't happen but i actually did spend the first week getting my shed in order and my garage in order so i think people are doing that and you know getting caught up on some things that they uh, they never would have had time to do and, and that's what i've been doing and then i think i got a little i'm not that that uh I'm not a high tech guy, but I think I got a little more tech, you know, technology in my arsenal right now with, you know, with the Zoom and the WebEx, and it's just, you know, I do have a headache though a lot of times at the end of the day just from looking at screens, whether you're watching TV or you're on a computer or you're on your phone, we're all doing the same thing. So the screen time went up a whole lot instead of being out on the field, which is what I like to do. Absolutely. That is, uh, that is the big negative right now is that all, all we do is stare at screens. It feels like. Yeah. It's everyone's doing the same thing, you know? And, and, uh, so, you know, our goal, my goal, one of my goals was hopefully that we can, um, use this as a positive and we can come out of, come out of this in a better, you know, better shape than we went into it. And, you know, I feel like we've been able to recruit some players that, that can help us going forward. So, that's the goal when this all gets done. And we're really hoping that people can get back to work. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people are hurting. Uh, hopefully those people can get back to work and, and, um, and then, you know, this kind of goes away and they, they get the problem solved. And, uh, and then our kids can get out and play summer ball. We're hoping that they can play summer ball and that we can go out and watch, you know, um, travel baseball or the end of a high school seasons. Uh, I just don't know when that's going to be, but 
you know, that's what we do for a living. So that's what we're focused on. And, you know, obviously the solving all these problems and then getting the, getting the country back going and working is, is the number one priority, not really baseball right now. Absolutely. We, uh, we hope that all of that comes together soon. I would, I would love to be able to see some baseball this summer, wherever it's being played. I'll go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you can get, get out the draft issues too. Um, yep. still uncertainty, you know, is that going to be five? Is it going to be 10? Um, so we were trying to, you know, to talk to some of our players that that may or may not affect and, and, you know, put some plans in place. So it's a lot of stuff to, to handle. Um, but again, you know, uh, spend X amount of hours each day plugging away on some of that stuff and then then do something else and then you're on to the next day. That's kind of, the days seem to be going by pretty quick. That is good. You can't, can't let them get stale at this point. You know, it, it is hard, but you gotta, gotta find a routine, I suppose. I well, Coach, we, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to join us here on the podcast today. It was, uh, it was great to, to catch up with you and to, uh, to hear about, you know, how you're working through all of this stuff. Well, I appreciate you reaching out and, and uh, you know, look forward to following your stuff. And then hopefully, you know, hopefully everyone's getting a chance to watch some professional baseball here before everything else gets going. So that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. All right. Stay safe. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you again to Rutgers coach Steve Owens for joining me on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, we now have Joe back, and Joe has listened to the interview. Again, uh, we had to schedule a conflict this morning. Uh, but Joe, what, uh, when, when you were listening back to, uh, to the interview, kind of what stood out to you about what Steve Owens was saying? I really liked how honest he was and how he seemed to kind of reflect on his career and how he got to be where he is. It struck me as, as very thoughtful and introspective in a way to the point where he just kind of said, I've probably, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I've probably been a little less aggressive with moving to other jobs as I, as I could have been. And I think he's probably right. I mean, to the point that you made before we started the interview for folks who follow college baseball, Steve Owens was very on the radar. I think there was a, a curiosity, even if you didn't know his Lemoyne history. Um, and certainly, unless you were in the Northeast, you wouldn't have known about his Cortland State history. But, you know, he does what he does at LeMoyne, then he goes to Bryant. And there was a period of time when, when what was going on at Bryant was like very top of mind in college baseball to a certain degree, where it was like, what is going on? I mean, in 2016, they go 47 and 12. And I think that was really the peak of it, where everyone was like, what on earth is happening here? Like, he's really got this rolling. And, you know, so it stands to reason he had opportunities you know, he was very on the radar for, for me, for you, for other people who follow college baseball closely. That means he was long on the radar among coaches and athletic directors who are keyed into what's going on in these sports. And he just said, you know, I was happy where I was. And it's hard to blame him. He was having a lot of success where he was at all of his stops. And there's, there's the saying that goes around in coaching circles that you don't mess with happy. And it kind of just sounds like he was in that place where he was happy doing what he was doing. And he he wasn't overly motivated by just moving on to whatever was next. He was motivated by doing the best job at whatever it was he was doing at that precise moment. And it's clear that the proof is in the pudding there. And now I think it says something to me anyway, at the risk of projecting maybe a little bit too much. It says something to me about Rutgers as a job that Steve Owens took it because he's someone who, even before I heard this, 
this little quote from him from the interview you did earlier, I think we kind of all intuited that because he should have had opportunities to move on if he wanted to, at least that stood to reason, that he wouldn't have taken this job if he didn't see something in it. He's not going to go take a job that's going to, that, where he doesn't think he can win and that, that there's going to be a situation where four or five years from now, he's kind of back trying to figure out what's next in his career. He's not the type of coach to do that kind of thing. So I think it really has forced me to recalibrate what I think Rutgers can be. Now the challenges are obvious with not just the geography, but also facilities, things like that history outside of a very narrow period of time, which he alludes to under coach Fred Hill. But I just think there's maybe a little more potential there than I'd been giving it credit for because someone like Steve Owens or Steve Owens specifically in this case took this job. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, when I, when, when Rutgers came open last year, when they, they announced they'd made the move to get, uh, to move on from Joe Letario, I tweeted, you know, almost probably immediately that they should just call Steve Owens. And again, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, presumably Rutgers people are still listening. Uh, I'm still waiting for my, my fee on that, my consulting fee. So, I mean, anytime uh, you can DM me. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Ted Cahill. But the, the point is, it was so obvious that he was the guy. And I think it came at a time when it was a good time for, for him to, to be looking as he's talking about, you know, that he had probably taken Bryant as far as he could take them. And, you know, maybe they have a miracle Stony Brook-esque season in them, but that's what it would have been. You know, I don't know that you can build into it any better. They had, you know, their, their shot in 2016 as a two seed. You know, I, I don't know anything, anything more than that would have either just been recapturing that magic and doing it again, or, you know, a, a Cinderella story. And, you know, Bryant had become the absolute, dominant team in the NEC, but it was struggling like a lot of teams in one bid leagues do to win its conference tournament. And I'm sure that was frustrating. We didn't get into that on the interview. We didn't really talk about much about Brian at all, but that has to wear on you a little bit. And the thing that you hear a lot when you talk with people about how coaches make decisions, uh, when it's time to move on, what kind of jobs they're looking for, most, if not all of them, are looking to get into conferences that are multi-bid leagues because then you don't have to worry about that. If Steve Owens wins the Big Ten and then loses in the Big Ten tournament, Rutgers is going to go to the NCAA tournament. Like, you don't have to worry about it. And, you know, that has to, that, that's, that's a big draw for any of these jobs in, in those kinds of leagues. New Jersey as a state is a very, uh, you know, it's pretty populous. There is good talent there. Just ask Virginia, just ask Vanderbilt. Uh, there's talent there and there are guys that, that can absolutely play at a really high level. So if you can just keep some of those players home, I mean, this is the story of Rutgers in like every sport. If you can just find a way to keep some of those players home, you have a chance to be really good. And, you know, the facility is not the best in the Big Ten. It's probably not in anywhere close to even that, that kind of range. Uh, but, you know, I, this, this is a guy that when I was doing, when, when I was calling coaches who, who had voted for Steve Owens as, as most underrated, you know, one of them mentioned that, you know, nowhere he had been was a great facilities place. Bryant became a good facilities place while he was there, but he didn't inherit it in a good spot. Obviously it was a division two school. 
in Rhode Island. Like they're not going to have amazing facilities. So he's a guy that can win without that. And, and that's one of the reasons why people think he's going to be successful at Rutgers. And I would include myself in that. I don't know that Rutgers is going to suddenly become, well, I know that it's not suddenly going to become a powerhouse in the Big Ten. I don't know that it's ever going to get there, but I do think he's a guy that can get the Scarlet Knights back to the NCAA tournament that can make it a program that is operating at a much higher level. And there is that ceiling there. You know, we know what Fred Hill did with Rutgers. Obviously, that's a different conference, different time in college baseball, but I don't think it's that different in terms of what Rutgers can eventually get to with the right coach leading the way and, and the right support from the administration. And, you know, I, I would like to think that, that they have, you know, making this move has to, you know, show where that Rutgers is maybe putting a little bit more into its baseball program. Yeah, I I think that's right. I I think that's, that's what I'm inclined to to think as well. And the the blueprints are out there, uh, not specifically at Rutgers necessarily, but there are other coaches at places that aren't that different. I think of, you know, Jim Pinders at, at UConn and in terms of facilities were not good. You know, they were in a good conference, especially when they moved to the American. Obviously, there's the link of them both having been old Big East schools. But, you know, UConn's facilities where they were, its geography was was playing against them. They were in a pretty good conference if they could just kind of put the wins together. And, and so perhaps UConn was starting from a higher place. Than, than, than Rutgers is in right now. But I, I think that's a, an interesting uh, proof of concept for, for a program like Rutgers and, and Rutgers specifically in, uh, in, in this case. And it's no kind of transitioning. Well, back I, would, to, I would also, before you get into that, yeah, I, w- sure. I would throw out Boston College as another example of this. You know, there's, there's a, a program, you know, northernmost program in the ACC, absolute worst facilities uh, when you know, prior to them building the new ballpark and the hitting facility and whatever else they have there in the, the pre- Pete Frady's complex now. Um, and yet they made a super regional. And, you know, so that's what can be done. UConn and BC, that, that is who everyone is chasing in that part of the country. Um, you can maybe throw St. John's into this, but they actually have pretty good facilities for where they are. Like UConn and BC show that, you know, facilities aren't that be all and end all up there. Uh, you know, they can, Jim Penders and, and Mike Gambino are doing great jobs at these two places that, that are a little far flung from their, their leagues. Uh, and, and they're, they're winning at a really, really high level. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a certain level of, well, I think it's, I'll, I'll say it this way, looking back at the, the coaches who got votes in your, uh, your poll here, you know, it, it's, three out of the top five are guys not far from each other. And Steve Owens at Rutgers, Jim Penders at UConn is third, and Mike Glavin at Northeastern is fifth. And I think that's interesting in, in a couple of ways. And one is that um, that's not a surprise that the limelight does not shine as bright in the Northeast as it does in other parts of the country. And, and I think another part of that, though, is it's a pretty tight-knit Northeastern community. And you talked about this with him a little bit on, on in the interview where – I think that's how a coach like Owens gets from being a, a division three head coach to being at, at Rutgers within just a few moves and over a long period of time is, is I think those Northeastern coaches, it's a tight knit community. Now, obviously some of that is just literally the geography is tight knit. <laughs> There's just not that much space between those States altogether. And you kind of know everybody. And 
to his point, there's a whole bunch of schools just crammed in there. And so you're playing everybody in your area within your division. And so I think that's how a coach like Steve Owens gets to where he gets in a lot of ways is those coaches, A, kind of stand up for each other in a way. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it just kind of seems that way that they kind of all stand up for each other and in some way. And then, and then furthermore, there's really no secrets up there. I think everybody knows everybody within the, the college baseball community in the Northeast. And I think that's how you end up with having coaches like this that are kind of universally lauded of doing, doing more with less. And with those three guys, I think the, the proof is certainly in the pudding. So I mentioned before we played the interview that, you know, you, Joe, did not get, you did not come close to guessing Steve Owens when I, when I was having you guess who, who had, placed first in the voting here. And as I recall, you did not come close to getting Link Jarrett either, that I think you finally might have gotten chimpenders on the board at some point. Uh, but you know, you guessed several times and you did not come up with these these two. And and I guess afterwards you were a little bit like, huh, I thought they were a little more on the radar and getting the recognition. But you know, so w- kind of what's your take on that, that that at least among their peers, they're saying that the that Owens and Jarrett are are still underrated, despite the fact that they've now made moves into these major conferences. Link also moved to Notre Dame, um, you know, within the last year. I think some of that is probably just because we don't know how the sausage is made. And I think you and I feel like sometimes we have a pretty good grasp on which jobs are good, which jobs are hard, what the challenges are. And we probably do to a large degree, more so than just an average observer but we really don't know, right? We're not there every day. These coach now, obviously that the rival coaches and their, their colleagues aren't there every day either, but they talk, they, they talk at, at ABCA. They, they talk just via texts and calls and they talk when they play each other. And, and I just, and I think coaches also kind of in, can, can intuit what the challenges are in given programs because they've seen a lot. And so I think that's part of what this is, is there, there are probably challenges kind of below the surface that we don't even really know about and that they've just heard about or they've witnessed, or maybe they, maybe they coached in that place before. So I think there's just a lot that you can't see. And, and I tell people that, that uh, talk to me either in press boxes or when I see fans out at stadiums or on Twitter, what have you, when they ask me about coaching carousel type stuff and, and what coaches go where, and, you know, inevitably they'll ask about why a certain coach is maybe still in a certain job. And one of the things I always say is that, you know, sometimes what the metrics you're using to measure how successful a coach is are not the metrics being used by the people who matter in the decision making. And so I think that's kind of, this is kind of a different version of that where just because on paper, a certain job, you know, we might look at the, 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 the what, what we can see on the outside and say, oh, this coach is properly rated. He's doing a good job. He's winning these many games, or I think he's properly rated because he's He's winning, but not winning huge. And there's not been a breakout year for that program. But below the surface, there are some coaches who probably look at the job they're doing and go, my goodness, like any other coach in this job would not be winning at nearly the level this coach is doing it. So I think that's probably what the biggest part of this is, is is these coaches have a really intimate knowledge of the benefits and challenges of specific jobs or jobs like the ones they're most familiar with. So the top five shook out as Steve Owens, Link Jarrett, Jim Penders, Reggie Christensen, and Mike Lavin were, were tied for fourth. Those those first three were in order, Owens, Jarrett, Penders. I, the, you know, those five guys, like, it's hard for me to say that, you know, it, I, I cannot disagree with that at all. Uh, you know, I, that's not to say that if I'd filled out my own poll that I would have 
for sure voted that way. Uh, you know, I, I'm really not sure who I would go out and, and consider the most underrated, but seeing it in front of me, those five guys are, are very much deserving of, of that kind of recognition. And hopefully they are starting to get more broader recognition. And, you know, that's, it's not easy to, to continue to pull off because, you know, Jim Penders, he has a super regional. He, you know, coached George Springer, like uh, Nick Ahmed, Mike, Mike Ohl, like, uh, you know, several other first round arms in the most, you know, in recent years, UConn is a, a team that's pretty consistently in the NCAA tournament in a significant conference. Like, I don't know. I mean, short of him, like, do like, I guess part of the problem is the super regional was now 10 years ago. Maybe he needs to do it again, but, uh, you know, I, I would hope that people just understand that he's really good, but also, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that, you know, UConn is only just, you know, they were supposed to open their stadium a month ago. And before that they were, they did not have great facilities there at all. But there's a reason why that super regional or when they hosted a regional, uh, why they did it off campus. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tricky situation with, with a lot of these guys that, you know, maybe some of them are waiting for their true breakthroughs, but, you know, if you're doing it outside of the traditional power structure, uh, sometimes it's a little out of sight, out of mind. And I think that's why you get three Northeastern guys in the top five is that it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind sometimes that, you know, there are really good programs up there and hopefully we do a good job of remembering that. But uh, you know, the, the college baseball writ large, um, you know, is, is definitely not, their attention is not focused up there. And, you know, I know we can do a better job of remembering that there are good teams, uh, you know, outside of some of the significant hotbeds, but I, I was not surprised that three of the top five ended up being coaches who, who coach in that part of the country. Yeah. I, it it kind of got me to thinking when he was talking during the interview about, you know, we've got some really populous uh, cities up here and some really populous states up here. And I think for folks who have never, now I've never lived up in that part of the country or really spent significant time up there, but I think uh, some folks might not realize like quite the extent to which that is true, that just the New York City metro area, for example, like spreads out to multiple states with multiple millions of people living in these states that probably associate themselves as New Yorkers to some degree. They go into the city to work or go into the city to do social things. Um, and that's just that city, you know, there's, there's obviously Boston is another big metropolis up there. And, and so, I mean, they're to say nothing of, you know, Philadelphia a little bit further down, but there are a lot of people that live up there, a lot of kids who play baseball. And it really just kind of is interesting to me that, that there is so much talent up there, not to the extent of, okay, Southern California, Texas, Florida, what have you, but, there are a lot of players up there and some end up many get drafted uh, many go find um, you know places like Vanderbilt and Virginia that do a good job recruiting up there some go way further south you know there's always northeastern kids on places that you know schools like Stetson you know I think in the past has had some northeastern kids I mean who can blame them I guess get into the warmer weather but it's always made me think about what are the conditions under which a team in the northeast and maybe it's UConn getting through to a world series uh, you know, but it's hard to imagine that being more than just a one-off though. I mean, obviously the weather is what it is and your sport starts in February. You're always going to be playing behind the eight ball a little bit, but 
you know, if, if Michigan can do it in the Big Ten, and I know there are differences, like there, there are big-time differences, Big Ten affiliation perhaps being chief among them, uh, nationwide brand recognition for Michigan being another. But on a smaller scale, I, I just wonder what the conditions would be for a team in the Northeast to be able to, to, to break out and be a little more consistent year over year. And, and I'm probably, again, I'm probably shorting UConn here for what, they've, for what they've accomplished. But to your point, the Super Regional has been far enough in the past. It's maybe easy to do that. And I know not just weather limitations, but, hey, space limitations. If we're going to talk about being a populous area, um, you know, the facilities limitations um, in, in certain places. But I mean the space limitations in terms of, you know, there aren't a lot of, I'll, I'll put it this way, a team in, in the heavily populated area, St. John's is not going to be able to do, for example, not going to be able to do what Minnesota does and play in a football, a domed football stadium to be able to kind of combat the weather, for example. So some of those like really unique one-off situations like what Minnesota has just can't really be replicated for various reasons. So there's a lot of things playing against it, but I've always just been curious about what would have to happen for a team to come along and, and really scrape those kids, the really high level kids in New Jersey um, and in, in Pennsylvania and in the New York city Metro area and, and put together some team that could be a little more consistent from year to year and not be as sensitive to having those rebuilding periods. And maybe I'm asking for something that ultimately just can't happen as college baseball is currently constructed, but it's, it's certainly an interesting thought exercise. At the risk of us wandering a little further from the, the original point here, um, Boston College next year, like they're, it's a year they're gearing up for, and they have three kids who are top 100 prospect types in the draft, maybe even better than that. I think we might have them rate. I, well, I guess we don't have a combined list yet. So let's just say that they have three top 100 uh, pick types there next year. If they go to a super, that would then be their second super in six years. And I know that's, I'm, I'm not saying here saying that Boston College is favored to do that, although I'm not saying they're not next year. Is that, is that enough for that? Or are you looking at it in between and seeing like, okay, well, what, what did you do in between that that first super and that second super and I'm not seeing a whole lot of tournament appearances are, are you is is that kind of you're saying that you want something more consistent than that without those fallow periods in between yeah so that's so that's interesting that's a really good example because I think this illustrates what I'm what I'm getting at a little bit is I think the the what would get it there would be those peaks um, not only just without the valleys, but where the valleys are kind of more like what UConn can accomplish, where it's in the worst years, we're on the wrong side of the bubble. I, mean, I can't, maybe there's probably been a year and I don't have their year by year up in front of me, but I'm sure there's been a year where UConn has, has been a little bit less than that. But it feels like nine times out of 10 in their worst years, it's wrong side of the bubble, still made a little bit of a run, pretty good team. And so I think if, if it's just, let's say BC in a super next year, those periods in between, you know, I thought this was going to be easier to explain given your example, but like, I think yes is the answer to, to what you asked me, where it's like those fallow periods in between make it hard for me to say they've accomplished what I'm looking for. I would think it would be something more like, okay, you've got these super regional appearances six years apart, but you made, you know, one or two regionals at the midpoint of those two points. I'm not asking a Northeastern team to be, you know, year over year over year over year, like an SEC team where the expectation is getting to regionals. But just, you know, uh, 
not having periods of, of, of three, four years in between postseason appearances and maybe having every five or six years kind of a, a year where you peak with other regional appearances kind of around it. So you take what UConn has done, annual regional contender, most years a regional team, and combine it kind of with what Boston College could potentially do in 2021, where you peak a couple of times in a big, big way. And I guess ultimately, hey, look, I mean, UConn wins a couple more games in a regional a couple times in the last six or seven years. Like, that's what we're talking about. So again, maybe I'd be, <laughs> the theme of this for me is I'm underrating what UConn is doing. Um, yeah, but, and I mean, a little bit to, to an extent, probably also underrating what BC is doing because, so it's actually five years I, I did the math wrong initially. Um, and they almost made the tournament last year and could have made the tournament this year. You know, we, we, they were closer to the bubble last year than most people realized. And this year we had them as a bubbly team from our preseason field. So I don't know. I feel like BC and UConn are both close to attaining what you're talking about. They are definitely not there yet, but I feel like either one of those teams could pull it off and to bring this full circle. That's what Steve Owens is probably shooting for at Rutgers. Yeah, no doubt. And look at the, the potential, at least on a very superficial basic level is there. You, you have, you're in the right conference. You're in a state that has the talent, you know, that they've got some things going for them. Rutgers for their lack of a, a, uh, playing facility has a good indoor facility that allows them to train uh, in, in, a, in a very pointed way before the season. So they've got a lot going for them. So you're right. I mean, that is what he's going for. And I think the potential for that is there, um, you know, he's going to have some runway to do so and he will, he will need it, but uh, the potential is there for it to be that. And I, I guess the, the, the big idea that I have behind this is just that we're in a period of time where it has never mattered more in college baseball to be a member of a certain subset of leagues. That is, it has always helped. Don't get me wrong. But as you and I have talked through the last couple of years and looked at it compared to six, seven, eight, ten 10 years ago, the, the, the bids are very concentrated in these major leagues. It has never been more important to be in one of those leagues. So can these Northeastern schools really capitalize on that in a way that maybe in the past, you know, their borderline resumes weren't good enough. And instead the committee might've reached for a second team in the West coast conference or a third team in the big West or another team in the Southland conference. Maybe those days are going away to where the teams in the Northeast can maybe capitalize a little bit more and their bubble resumes, get them in versus out a little more often. All right. So we will see where, where that takes us. Um, that it's always interesting to, you know, really examine uh, the potential of schools like those in the Northeast and, uh, particularly Rutgers at, at a time when, uh, you know, Steve Owens is, is trying to, uh, you know, kickstart the program a little bit. The Coaching Confidential series will continue this week. It's going to be running on Wednesdays every week for the next couple of months. Uh, I have several questions uh, that, that will keep us busy. Uh, I believe this week's question is, who is the assistant coach who would will become the best head coach. Uh, so check out baseballamerica.com uh, for the answer to that poll on Wednesday, and we'll probably talk about it next Monday uh, on the podcast. Today, over at the website, we put out a top 25 because it is a Monday. And as, as I've mentioned for the last few weeks here, we're, we're doing these top 25s. 
um, about various topics because we can't rank the teams anymore. So today's topic was the 25 best Golden Spike seasons, and that's important. We're just ranking the seasons, not the winners, not their careers, not their impact, not their big league careers, the seasons um, that they had. Obviously, some of that other stuff is impossible to disassociate, uh, but the primary factor we were evaluating on was what they did in the season. They won the Golden Spikes, uh, and we did that in part because we had a you know a news event last week in which USA Baseball, which uh, presents the Golden Spikes, said announced that they were not going to uh, you know give the award out this year. Unsurprisingly, but they they chose last week, late last week, to to announce that fact. And Ashton Mills uh, reached out to me on on the Instagram and suggested that maybe we uh, we try ranking these. And Joe and I did not come up with better ideas. So shout out to Ashton. We really appreciate that. If you guys have ideas for 25 things for us to rank on a Monday, uh, we obviously need them. We have ideas of our own, but since we're trying to do this for the next several months until baseball restarts, uh, we are going to need some help like Ashton gave us this week. So thanks to Ashton. And if you have ideas, uh, you, you guys apparently know where to find me because I don't really uh, mention my Instagram a ton anymore, but it is tedcahill.ba. DMs are open there, just like they are on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, and you can find our emails relatively easily. So plenty of ways to get in touch with us with top 25 ideas if you have them. Uh, Joe, I kind of bullied you into saying Buster Posey was the greatest uh, Golden Spikes season. I, I mean, you did not fight that hard, but we went with Buster Posey. I think it was Buster Posey somewhat clearly. Um, and then what did we have? Two was Mark Kotze, and then three, Stephen Drew. Uh, two absolutely fantastic seasons from the Knowles. And, and then from there, you can check out the, the, well, I guess four, McKay, and then five, Mark Pryor. And then you can check out the rest on the website. But Joe, how, how did you, uh, what, what, you did a lot of the digging for these stats. Uh, what did you learn along the way? Uh, first of all, that some of these stats are hard to find. Um, unfortunately, college baseball has not been archived in the way that I presume, I guess I can't say for certain, but in the way I presume college football and college basketball have been. So there is a great incongruity in, in being able to find some stats versus versus others. That was a little bit tough. I will correct you quickly. You said Stephen Drew. It was J.D. Drew, of oh, course. Yes, <laughs> Stephen Drew, Drew. Very good Florida State career in his own right. Uh, but yes, J.D. Drew with his ridiculous 97 season. Um, so yeah, Buster Posey was the number one. And like I said, I didn't really, like you said, I didn't really fight that just because I was having a hard time. Even that's where I started with this whole discussion was, I don't know who to put one. I think at one point I thought, I thought JD drew, cause I thought there was like a little bit of uh, cultural relevance there where, in, but I was probably overstating that. And there was the relevance of, you know, he gets drafted first overall, or, sorry, second overall by the Phillies doesn't sign plays a couple of summers of independent ball before he gets drafted again in 98. That was just kind of, I remember that being a huge story. And some of that is probably because I remember it well as a kid. So I'm probably overstating that, but Mark Pryor came to mind just because he was so dominant at a time when offense was all the rage 2001 and his numbers in 2001 look like numbers pitchers were putting up. And actually his season really isn't that much different from uh, Trevor Bowers in 2011 and Trevor Bauer actually ends up getting hurt a little bit on this list 
because of the fact that he was doing it at a time when offense well, – his final season, the year he won Golden Spikes, was at a time when offense was at its lowest in college baseball. So that was kind of a just the comparison I was drawing there. But, yeah, Buster Posey's certainly as good a – as good a choice as any. I mean, hitting hitting 463 while playing an ACC schedule is nothing to sneeze at. It's also and just catching and catching. Yes, and you know, throwing a few innings in relief. I put the relief stat line in there, although it was not all that consequential. But it did save six games, um, so there was that. And it's an interesting story too. I mean, he wasn't naturally a catcher, so he was also learning the position as he was doing this, and wasn't much of a power bat his first two years. Then all of a sudden, just kind of went nuts and. In, um, in his junior season from a power standpoint. So, yeah, I, hard to argue too much there. A couple of other seasons that really impressed me just to kind of dot this list a little bit. One is Khalil Green, who I remember – he comes in at 11 on our list. I remember the name, obviously. I remember him playing in the big leagues. I even vaguely remember that 2 season at Clemson. But I don't know that I really understood the extent to which his, his timeline as a college baseball player is really bizarre. He was a perfectly nice player for three years. Junior year, hits 303, 12 homers, gets drafted in the 14th round by the Cubs. Most players sign for that. 14th round, had a nice year at Clemson, moving on. He comes back for his senior year and just goes bananas. Like, hits 470, 33 doubles, 27 home runs, 91 RBI, you know, all that stuff. Goes to the College World Series, Clemson in 02, becomes a first-round pick. And that particular career path is just not one you're going to see very often and I don't know that anyone did it to the extent that Khalil Green did it so that was a season that you know I have to admit I'll just be honest when Teddy and I were were, were, on Friday I was initially just trying to like reduce the amount of work for us and I was just throwing out guys who I thought weren't going to make the cut ultimately and throwing in guys I thought were obvious choices And, and we hadn't narrowed down our are um, exactly what the parameters were going to be yet. So that's kind of the, the credit I'll give myself. But I'll admit that Khalil Green was not a name I really anticipated, maybe not even having on this list. And if he was on the list, he wasn't going to be someone I anticipated having as high as 11th. And then you look at the numbers and they just absolutely blow you away, both in, in, in raw terms and also just understanding his backstory. Yeah, he uh, it, it's it's really impressive uh, what he was able to do, and then when you consider like just on its face, very impressive. And then when you consider where he had come from in the previous few years, uh, you know, all all the more impressive that he was able to to make that jump uh, and, and you know put together a final year like that. I think that. Um, you know, one other season worth highlighting was Bob Horner, who won the first Golden Spikes Award. And I had to dig a little bit for those stats. But once I found them, or maybe Joe had half of them, and then I dug for some, some more context around them. Because let me tell you, 1978 college baseball is not what it is today. Like, And I don't even know... Actually, no, I know that Joe and I don't have the full context necessary to like truly... Uh, figure out what college baseball was like back then but when you drive in 100 runs in 60 games and hit 25 home runs and hit 412 uh, and then you go first overall and are a first ballot member of the college baseball hall of fame uh, that that jumps out and that got that got bob horner on the list at the at the back to be fair but it got him on the list and I, I was, it was interesting learning about him. 
I was also interested to learn about how the award has changed over time. I did not realize that, and, you know, and I don't even, to this, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this level of research, so I don't know precisely when they changed doing it, but they used to give this award in the fall. And so that meant that you got to see how, you know, the summer played out, whether that's on the Cape or with Team USA, or in the case of, you know, kids that get drafted, you get to see how it plays out with the, their entry into pro ball. And back in the day when they were doing this, like I'm talking late 80s and before, um, you know, that really helps some guys. Bob Horner never played a day in the minor leagues. And, you know, that, that season, I'm sure, was enough to win him Golden Spikes on its face. I, I actually don't know when the 1978 award was given out. But, you know, Alex Fernandez jumped very quickly into the big leagues. And I have to think that that was a significant part of why he won the award that year. Because, you know, they were looking at it and seeing, oh, man, like, that's how good he was. Like, yeah, his junior college numbers are amazing. Yeah, we knew he was a really good prospect. And then, like, oh, wow, he went out and did it in pro ball right away. And, you know, Jim Abbott, who won the award in his sophomore season, which is, like, statistically not his best college season. You know, when I was – Joe and I were, were looking into that and a little, like, flummoxed as to why he won the award that year especially over Robin Ventura, who had potentially his best season that year, not his actual Golden Spike season. And it seems to be that Jim Abbott just had this incredible summer with Team USA in the Pan Am games. And you pile those two things together, his really good season in college, and then his Pan Am summer with Team USA, and you get the best amateur player in the country. So it, it was a different award. Now we look at it, and it's just a flat out what you did in the spring. and you know, I can't remember, like, I feel like we have to vote before the NCAA tournament really even begins. So it's really just a regular season college award now. It's, you know, built like the Heisman is now. And, you know, whereas when it started, it was awarded later. So they had this other information that they could take into account. So I don't know, that was an interesting thing that I learned about the award uh, in the process of of doing this and just trying it. I, I wouldn't have found it out. I don't think if I hadn't had to go look for numbers in unusual places and I wound up finding some of them in like old UPI stories that were all dated in November. And I was like, why are they giving this award out in November? And so I learned. There are a couple of other things that, that just about the mechanics of it, they were interesting to me. It seems there was a, a period of time when the award was also just kind of a proxy for like a career achievement award. I mean, you mentioned Robin Ventura and, and his season when he won that as a junior was pretty decidedly his worst season at Oklahoma State. I mean, he comes in at like 14 on this list. And if we were to just rank these players on their college production, he might be number one, honestly. Like three-time first-team All-American, numbers that are just like absurd year after year, consistency through the roof. But his junior season just was in, in when you're comparing ridiculous seasons against ridiculous seasons, was just kind of in the middle. And so I have to imagine, you know, the voters at that time were just like, okay, this is our last shot to give this to Robin Ventura. And we kind of have to give it to him because he's been the best player in college baseball the last three years. So I don't know if that was the case, but certainly I can see that. And you see it again with Pat Burrell in 98, where the year Pat Burrell, he's not on this list. And the reason is the year he wins Golden Spikes, he missed 38 games with injury. And now, granted, he still hit for something and had 17 home runs in essentially half a season, which is impressive in, an, in its own right. 
But that was a year when it was clearly just Pat Burrell's the best player in college baseball. Let's give it to Pat Burrell. And then he was, the, you know, the number one pick famously. So, uh, you know, they were just trying to find, you know, the best player in college baseball. And it, it was, I suspect it was a little bit of um, career achievement award in those, in those cases. One other name that, that you and I debated a little bit that I think is interesting in this context, and that's Ben McDonald. And there's a lot of, um, Ben McDonald is kind of this mythical figure in SEC baseball history, and rightfully so. I mean, the guy was dominant. Um, but, you know, he ends up with, in his Golden Spikes winning year, a 349 ERA, which was the highest ERA of anybody who won this award going through you know, everybody's stats here. Um, and he, he still has the SEC strikeout record, which is, which is certainly an achievement. But then you start to compare him to someone like David Price in 07. And if, if David Price had thrown as many innings as Ben McDonald did and kept up a similar, not even the same, but a similar strikeout rate, David Price is probably your SEC strikeout record holder. And then you got guys like Trevor Bauer who, okay, he pitched with BB core bats, but that had nothing to do with whether or not hitters could make contact against him. And so his strikeouts were right on par with those. So it's, it's, it's the type of name Ben McDonald's was season was a, that I suspected. And I suppose you did as well, Teddy, that was going to be a lot higher on this list. And then you started to really dig into it and he ends up falling down quite a bit further than I really expected him to in the end. I mean, you definitely know that I thought that because I initially told you, like, I don't know how different Mark Pryor is from Ben McDonald. <laughs> and then we actually looked at it and you were like, no, it's different, Teddy. And then we placed him and then I kept looking at it more and I was like, how different is David Price from Ben McDonald? And it just, it was one of those things that like, you know, if I had been making this list like myself, like he just would have slid down every time I looked at it, you know, as it was, Joe kind of saved me from that. So we only had to slide him down a couple of times, but you know, it's, uh, when you start looking at these numbers, uh, your eyes can glaze over a little bit because they're all really good. You know, Dave Magadan hit over 500 and is, I don't know, what is he, 17th on this list, 18th? Like, you know, the dude hit more than 500 and he's in the middle of the pack. But that, that's what happens when you're looking at the, the best seasons in college baseball history or, you know, some of the best seasons in college baseball history. Dave Magadan, by the way, just quickly, um, he strikes me as the type of guy who, if he had come along now, that would have been an absolute monster as a pro. And I'm not, I'm not a hitting instructor. I am not a scout. I, but, like, I look at his profile, and, like, he did nothing but hit for average. In college, even in the pros, he has a, basically a 16-year career just based on the fact that this guy does not strike out. He puts the bat on the ball. He hits about 300. But the guy was like 6'4". I read an article from when he was in Alabama, and he's listed on Baseball Reference as 6'4", 190. But I read an article, I think, for his online or if it was in our Head of the Class book, an article about Matt. I, I forget where I saw it, but mentioned that he was more like in college 6'4", and like 215, 220. And he just seems right to be the type of player that he was just hitting a certain way. And if he had been taught to hit kind of the way we're teaching hitters now, that his back-to-ball skill and his ability to draw walks would have just played really well. And with a frame like that, it's, he seems like the type of guy that should have hit for more power if he was swinging a certain way. Now, that's not to say it would have worked or that would have taken, but I just looked at everything around Dave Magan and was like, this guy, if he came along today, I think would have been an absolute monster. One of the great unknowables, obviously. But, uh, you know, you think about guys like Ichiro who – you know, clearly was not, was, was selling out to the opposite end. 
uh but you know every once in a while would like there are stories of him taking bp to hit home runs and just launching balls so you know maybe maybe magadan could have been that kind of player but he also uh, has a cameo of dave magadan and i believe it's little big league the children's movie oh, really? where they are yeah maybe i have the wrong movie but i think it's little big league where the the, the kid becomes the gm and manager of the twins oh, that's little big league yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't know if it's this movie Magan is in, but like, oh, okay. yeah, there's a scene where they're watching TV in the clubhouse to see if they win the division, and one of the other players says, "Mags, I love you, but I hope you die like a dog," because he's at the plate and he's want, if Magan gets out, the game is over. <laughs> so he, I think he grounds out or something. But um, I believe it's Little Big League. Maybe someone will correct me. Shouts to Little Big League. All right, so I think that's most of our news uh, for this podcast. Uh, we are doing two podcasts a week, though, and the second podcast is not our newsy podcast. It is our day to rewatch a classic baseball game from the past. We'll release that on Friday. Joe, why don't you tell everyone what we are listening to this week, or watching this week, rather? Yeah, we're going to be talking. Or you can listen. Just don't look at the TV, I guess. Um, Audio medium, but we are watching the game. You got right. Yes, if you want, listen if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 92 College World Series title game. Uh, Pepperdine, Cal State Fullerton, it's going to be, uh, well, it'll be in Omaha, but uh, Fullerton versus Pepperdine just brings to mind palm trees and ocean breezes and, and a lot of uh, pleasant weather. But uh, yeah, kind of a classic West Coast matchup. We already had one of these with USC Fullerton. This is a little bit of a different one with Pepperdine and, and, and Fullerton and uh, a legendary Pepperdine team. I think this is a, a team that lives on because it's, I mean, it was Pepperdine. It was not kind of a typical power that you would think would win it would be winning a national title. It's also a couple of famous coaches over on this team. Steve Rodriguez, Mark Wozikowski were both on this team. So it has kind of lived on through those coaches being asked about it um, time and time again. So it has a little bit of shelf life there. Um, it's also just a famous game. It's a close game. There are some kind of famous plays that get replayed. So uh, for all those reasons, it is, it is a game that kind of lives on in college baseball lore. I have never seen it. Um, I, and looking forward to it. Again, I will give the disclaimer I gave last time. The YouTube recording I found of this is not of the best quality. So please, obviously, Teddy and I did not put this game on YouTube. So do not add us on this. But, you know, probably just recorded off of somebody's VHS tape. So it is not great quality. It's a little bit fuzzy. Um, it looks like maybe if I were to take my glasses off, it's what it would look like if, if I took my glasses off and watched an HDTV. Uh, so a little bit fuzzy, but um, just bear with us. It is still very watchable. I'm not suggesting it's an unwatchable recording, but you'll you'll just have to kind of manage your expectations for what it's going to look like. I am excited to see this one. It's uh, it certainly is a game that you know you, you hear about 92 Pepperdine a lot, and so I'm kind of uh, looking forward to to seeing what that one is all about. I believe. We know who our guest is going to be. It is not locked up, though, so we will not mention who it will be. Uh, I guess look to Twitter later in the week, and we'll we'll probably mention it there. But we will have someone from that 92 Pepperdine team on to join us and break down their their win there in Omaha. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess. But, I mean, we've, we've given those a few of those already. So look for that in your, your podcast feed on friday and remember you can subscribe to the baseball america podcast on your favorite podcasting app apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you're listening to podcasts we are there and then you will get the podcast straight into your phone so it's very convenient for you if you uh, just hit that subscribe button 
we would greatly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And again, we are looking for top 25 list ideas uh, because we will, if, even if we don't need them this week, we'll need them somewhere down the line in the next few months. Uh, so we, we appreciate those uh, where we can get them. There will be plenty of content over at baseballamerica.com throughout the week. And there is a new list of 10 classic games you can watch on YouTube. I mentioned that last week. You might have looked for it on Friday and not seen it. Fear not. It has arrived on baseballamerica.com. So you can go check out the 10. This this latest set of 10 games Joe has uh, gone through the YouTube vault to find. We will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast on Friday with that rewatch of the 92 College World Series National Championship game. Until then, I want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you to Steve Owens for joining me on the podcast. Thank you to Joe. We'll talk to you on Friday. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.